Live bike racing is back. Flow Bikes is your home for live and on-demand coverage of the biggest events of the year, including the Giro d'Italia, Tour of Flanders, Amstel Gold Race, Tirreno Adriatico, and much, much more. Go behind the scenes with exclusive interviews, in-depth documentaries, and a host of other cycling-focused content. Additionally, Canadian viewers get access to the Tour de France, Vuelta España, Liège-Bastogne-Liège, and Paris-Roubaix. Subscribe today by going to flowbikes.com slash velonews. That's flobikes.com forward slash velonews. And when you purchase a Flowbike subscription, you'll get access to the entire Flow Sports network of over 25 sports. Sign up today at flowbikes.com slash velonews. That's F-L-O-B-I-K-E-S dot com forward slash velonews. The Tour de France is around the corner, and in a year of chaos, who knows what it will bring. To get an insight into how teams are making their final preparations, selections, navigating the COVID protocols, and just wrapping their heads around what is a difficult first week, we sat down with Rod Ellingworth, General Manager of Bahrain McLaren, to discuss the 2020 Tour de France. Hello and welcome to another episode of Put Your Socks On. My name is Angus Morton and as always, I am joined by Bobby Julik. Mate, how are you doing? Doing well, Gus. Doing well. School's about to start, so I guess this uh, this kind of elongated summer is coming to an end. After the podcast last week, I got I had an opportunity to go up to Plainfield, Vermont to visit Mount Cush, which is uh, Plainfield, Vermont. Have you ever been to Vermont, Gus? No, I've never. I mean, I've driven through, uh, but yeah. never, never spent any time I, there. I think I did the Killington Stage Race there way back when, but um, what a beautiful state, and I really know nothing about it. So Plainfield is about 45 minutes from Burlington, and we have a buddy, Anthony Sullivan, that most people know as the OxyClean guy that we met down here at Hotel Domestique during some of the, the camps that we run out of the hotel. And, you know, just kind of became fast friends over the years. And I was really impressed because his daughter, Devin, was born with a very rare genetic disorder. And after trying everything, all the treatments, Sully and his buddy Dave Christensen decided to start a CBD farm in order to give her the best organic chemical-free product possible. So they knew nothing about farming uh, a year and a half ago. And... When we went up there, I didn't really know what to expect, but I tell you, I was blown away. I don't know if you use CBD oil. I don't know if how many guys in the Tour de France use CBD oil, but it was a very interesting trip, and I'm I'm glad I got to go up there. Yeah, CBD is an interesting supplement that I've sort of had my ear on it for the last probably eight or so years. And I mean, yeah, it seems to be a pretty remarkable product. Um, certainly, if if it's pure and it and it, and it comes through um, as as it's sort of labelled. Um, so I'm I'm interested to hear more and learn more as that product becomes more um, uh, more closely studied. I know there's a bunch of stuff going on right now. They've they've approved it as a as a medication um, for I think one one quite specific disorder um and you know that's that's pretty that's pretty interesting so yeah one to keep an eye on and i do i mean there's there seems to be quite a few guys 
I don't know at the world tour level who use it, but certainly in the adventure world um, and and at a more amateur level, right? Um, Justin Williams uh, and the and the guys at at, at Legion LA are sponsored by Medterra, uh, like a, a CBD company. So they seem to use it. So yeah, I think it's its use is pretty widespread. Um, its efficacy, I'm not I'm yeah. not hundred percent sure, I, but it seems to be there. I think after the Tour de France, maybe we should uh, dive into that and uh, see what's going on. But I tell you, one of the, the, the best highlights of the week for me was I got to play soccer dad for my youngest daughter uh, this last Saturday. And, you know, it was only an hour and a half away, but you have to wake up really early. And I was tired and I was just thinking about all the hours and days that my parents did something like that for me just to get me to a bike race. Because I lived in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, and most of the races were over in the Denver, Boulder, Colorado Springs area. So, you know, thanks mom and dad for for making all those um, sacrifices to get me to those bike races. And just that hour and a half drive and then hanging out for the two hours at the game and hour and a half drive back was was great it just made me kind of appreciate what my parents did for me and you know that smile that you see when uh she didn't score a goal but she had two assists and that smile that they have when 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 they're playing a sport that they love is is just priceless so also uh it being the end of this quote unquote summer and school starting got to take my last little lake day ride with my two buddies george hincapie and christian vanneveld because with the tour starting George is going to be going to Aspen to do his podcast, and Christian is going to be going up to Connecticut to work for NBC Sports. So it, it was kind of a bummer. You know, it was like the last day of summer camp or something like that, right? Where you knew, gosh, when I see these guys again, it's going to be fall, it's going to be colder. But um, hey, we all have to, to pay the bills. But uh, yeah, enough about me. Where are you, and when do you think you're going to get back to Boulder? That's a good question. I'm, uh, I'm still quarantining down in, in Mexico. Um, I think I said last week, you know, been in the UK shooting a film. Uh, and so quarantined in the UK, shot the film out over a couple of weeks. And then in order to get back to the US, because I don't have an American passport, I have to quarantine in a non-UK, non-Schengen zone country. And so I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm in Mexico. <laughs> and mate, it's going well. We actually had a hurricane, uh, Hurricane Marco, come very close to to shore we lost power for a couple of days um but it didn't actually hit so that was fortunate um but we sat on the beach yesterday and and watched watched the hurricane go past and actually uh, someone was struck by lightning so it was it was a little you know a little tense there for a minute um but aside from that to be honest uh, i'm just looking forward to getting home it's been uh it's been a long process of quarantining <laughs> i will admit and uh and i'm just yeah just wanting to to get back to normality but soon enough, we will be at the Tour de France. Um, but before we get there, the week between the Dauphiné and now has been quite a big one. Both transfers, um, obviously tour selection, final selection has been made for a lot of teams. And there's been some names left out, some names included. Bobby, tell me a little bit about what's going on in the Tour de France selection over the past week. Well, yeah, the big news is... Um Possibly a changing of the guard at Team Ineos with Chris Froome and Garrett Thomas not being selected. That wasn't so much of a shock, but you know when you're used to seeing the same guys for the last decade, you know everything does come to an end. And we know that Chris is leaving the team next year, and I have to wonder if if Garrett Thomas is is also looking for a way out. But Ineos is making some moves. You know they they're leaving 
some very experienced, very successful riders. I mean, five Tour de France's between Chris and, and Garrett, like on the sidelines. But they did announce that they're, they signed Adam, Adam Yates. So you got to wonder who else is going to be heading over there um, because I've been hearing some big names being chucked around of, you know, reinforcements at Team Ineos. Oh, really? Who? I mean, yeah, I better, we better not, uh, you know, I don't want to s- step on any feet there. But yeah, I mean, there's some names being thrown around that will make that team. I mean, it's already an amazing super team. But um, yeah, I think their their future is pretty set with the guys that they're taking to the tour and be exciting to see how that whole thing works out. But we also had the national championship for, for many of the countries over in Europe. There was so many races and so many names that I can't pronounce. I'm just going to give a blanket congratulations to all the men and women that won those titles and get to wear that coveted national championship jersey for the year because um, there was a long list of them. And as you guys know, I'm not the best at pronunciating those, those harder names. There was a long list, but some exciting racing. I know we've been saying this quite a bit, but the Dauphiné was fantastic. The, the national championships have been fantastic. Uh, I'm really excited for the Tour de France. On that... Uh, oh, on, on Nice, right, the kickoff of, of, of the tour, Larry Warbassi, um, our, our buddy, we've had him on the pod before. We actually had him as our first guest when COVID kicked off, actually. Um, he recently returned a positive test for COVID-19, um, but I believe he's reporting no symptoms, Bobby. Yeah, I got to speak to Larry this week and, you know, he sounded perfectly healthy. Uh, he's showing no symptoms. He's really bummed because he has to quarantine. And, you know, the Tour de France is starting in Nice, where Larry's based, and he won't be able to go and see the guys or, or watch the race. He has to stay away from that sort of thing. So that's kind of a bummer. But um, hey, one thing I wanted to to say about the national championships is Matteo Vanderpool is coming on to form. And, you know, he, he kind of started off this whole, you know, re- kickoff of the season kind of slow. He wasn't where we thought he would be, but him soloing for like the last 40K of his national championships and and winning, but we're not going to, you know, his team wasn't uh, allowed to come to the Tour de France. His team, you know, obviously didn't get selected. So it's going to be interesting to see where that guy goes because man, when he's when you see a rider building in progression like him, uh, you just want to see him race. And we're not going to be able to see him race in the Tour de France, but I'm sure there's you know other races. But keep an eye on that guy because he started off a little slow and now he's clicking, he's turning it over, and I think he's going to be pretty darn dominant um, in these upcoming weeks. Yeah, I feel sorry for anyone who's not at the Tour de France uh, and has to turn up and race against him. Well... The Tour de France 2020 is right around the corner, and today we are lucky enough to speak with Rod Ellingworth. I call him Sir Rod, uh, general manager of the Bahrain-McLaren team, and he's down in the south of France right now, outside of Nice, getting ready for the start of the Tour de France. Rodney, great to have you back on the show, and welcome to uh, Put Your Socks On. Cheers, Bobby. Thanks for having us on again, yeah. Yeah, well, uh, let's just say a lot has happened since the last time we we spoke and we had you on the uh, the podcast here. But yep. uh, let's let's go back a tick. How did you and your team deal with the lockdown? And without going too deep into the weeds, what was it like for you and your team during this period? Well, I think you know, um, don't think it was easy for anybody, was it? You know, from a just a whole sporting side of things. You know, not just cycling, but 
sport in general, um, I, I think was pretty tough, or just life in general was pretty tough for everybody. I think for, you know, if we hone down in, on cycling, I think our sport actually wasn't too bad it can, uh, compared to other sports. So if you was a, a stadium sport, I, I spoke to quite a few different uh, American sports like basketball, um, American football, and they were really struggling because all their players were based in the middle of New York and couldn't get out of the apartments and, and therefore couldn't train. I think most most of the cyclists, so out of our 29 cyclists, only 11 were actually stuck inside for a maximum of two weeks. So, you know, for the majority of the guys, it was like a winter period. You know, it was, they could still get out on the bikes. Okay, they had to train on their own, but at least they could still do their basic training. And then even, you know, from a off-bike work, most of the gym work these guys do is, you know, they're not lifting big heavy weights. Most of them have got, you know, what they need, their operators in their own home. So, in terms of actual training, they weren't massively affected. It was more just the morale, you know, and the, and the mentality. Um, where I think for other sports, it was a, a huge impact, you know. And how did you? You just mentioned morale. How have you kind of yeah. kept the athletes and everybody motivated, well, or, or has that been easy? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we had we had other challenges as well. So you didn't just we didn't just have the the COVID challenge. Um, we also had the uh, you know that our partners were in trouble. You know, um, you know from a financial point of view, and and that was a that was potentially the biggest challenge that we had. I think from a from an athlete point of view, what what we tried to focus on was you know giving the rider some real clear objectives moving forward. Um, so we sort of split it into three different phases. So one was sort of maintaining uh, what they've got, um, getting ready to race, and then actually. Uh, returning back to race so we we clearly split it into the three different areas we we weren't sure at first you know how long the maintenance phase was going to be but we we were only a week or 10 days out on that you know from just it was literally guessing but we were actually it was a fairly well calculated guess but we did pretty well on that so you know so for some guys it was pretty much go back to that winter attitude uh, base miles you know just sort of uh, ticking over really and keeping the rough off so you know thinking about their weight and just uh, you know, general conditioning. For the guys, it was a little bit different, you know, but our whole objective was actually to return to racing really good, like on the ball, winning bike races. And that was a real focus. Um, so as we as we went through, we just ramped it up. But we did various things, lots of different things, um, lots of interaction with the, with the riders. You know, we didn't leave it at all. I, I, we didn't go a day or two without speaking to riders constantly. Yeah. So, so you, you kind of mentioned it there. I mean, we we've seen some teams kind of come out of this situation unscathed you know we see a lot of teams signing new riders but with with your two main sponsors one being oil based and the other being supercar based what were those those struggles that you had to deal with on top of the lockdown of all the riders i mean that must have taken a lot of time and effort out of your day as well to deal with that yeah, I think also um, to mention as well, you know, obviously we're, we're, we're a relatively new team. So we only formed this team together in October. So, you know, we, we'd got good momentum going before uh, the COVID uh, situation. So, you know, with all them things on, on, on top of each other, it was pretty difficult. And then obviously our partners, you know, as you're saying, Bobby, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, Bahrain um, were... were I, you know, weren't in trouble, but certainly, uh, you know, the oil industry was was taking a hit. And then obviously McLaren, you know, the whole Formula One uh, season was was stopped um, and they weren't sure whether it was going to return. And also just supercars, you know, they're a big part of their business is selling supercars. And nobody was investing in supercars at the time because nobody knew what was going to happen. So, you know, we have taken a hit. Um, it's out there in, in, in the public that we, you know, we ended up with a 25% cut. 
across all salaries, you know, which was a challenge. And again, to me, the biggest challenge there was just that we were a new team. You know, I was in this phase of, uh, you know, really trying to get these guys to believe in the program, believe in the system that we're running, um, to buy into my methods and and ways in which we wanted to work. And, you know, um, I've got to say, uh, you know, all hats off to the to the riders and staff who actually stuck with me and, and you know, I think have believed uh, in the in in our project you know in our vision so you know in the end it's it's turned out okay I, I certainly think it's going to make us a stronger team and we'll certainly see who's you know who's really in and who's not in if you like but in the main it's been pretty good and then let's talk about moving to to racing um yep. how have things gone for you guys you said you wanted to hit the ground running um yeah good yeah I mean, you know, we were within the first um, end of the first week, we'd got two wins on, you know, on the plate. So, you know, I think they were relatively small pro bike races, but for me, a win's a win, you know, and certainly you can see at the moment, the level across all racing is really high. I think, you know, there's extra pressures on, on everybody. There's teams which look like they could fold. There's lots of riders out of contract this year. You know, everybody wanted to prove. So I think it's really clear that a hell of a lot of bike riders trained hard in that lockdown and, and the actual level is, is pretty high. So, uh, I've been, you know, um, very satisfied with the return to racing. I don't think we could have actually asked for a lot more. I think Lander, who's obviously our key GC player, um, you know, has, has come back to racing really well and, and he proved that at Burgos. So yeah, um, I couldn't have asked for any more to be honest. Yeah. Well, let's let's get down to the nuts and bolts of what's going on next week. Uh, but before the Tour de France, there's that oh-so-crucial tour team selection process. Sure. I think our listeners would be interested in hearing how this decision is made, especially with all the different variables that you had to deal with, with the bubbles, with riders being in different areas, not being able to train, you know, not, not having the same normal race program as normal. And with the Tour de France being obviously the biggest race of the year and ultimate goal for most every rider out there, and then there only being room for eight which means there's going to be plenty of riders that are disappointed or not selected. And yeah. this, this can't be easy, but hoping that you could shed some light on how you and your team dealt with this, you know, how you selected the team, yeah. um, how, you, how, how you had to have those conversations with the riders that weren't selected. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, in general life within sports, selection is always a challenge. And, you know, I've been very fortunate to be part of the British Olympic programme. And I think, you know, when you get involved in selection for Olympic Games, which is once in a once every four years, maybe once in a lifetime opportunity, um, you know, you really learn and you understand what this means to people. So, you know, over my experience with, with the Olympics, the World Championships with, with Team Sky, uh, you know, I, I sort of... Um, you, you bring all that together, which helps you form your selection criteria. So for me, we, we clearly wrote up what is a selection criteria and actually nothing changed. So from the actual objectives of selection criteria, even though we didn't do the amount of days of racing, nothing actually changed. So on that selection criteria, you, you, you know, be very um, specific in terms of when, uh, when the dates are uh, in terms of selection, who, who makes selection, how do people make selection, what, what what's the actual demands so the sports directors give us the demands of the event which then tells you you know how many climbers do you take how many flat riders do you take and 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 so forth 
Um, so you've got the outline, and then basically you're saying to each of those groups, you know, uh, you know, this is what's expected of you. Uh, this is the level that we're expecting. This is the level of teamwork we're expecting. So it's all clearly written out in black and white for the whole team to see from very early on in this whole process. Um, I, I mean, the way in which we form the teams is similar to a, you know, a, a, a football team, like soccer team, as you guys say, you know, you, you've got midfielders, you've got defenders, you've got strikers. And we pretty much, you know, I, I pretty much base it around the same um, sort of uh, way in terms of having, you know, you've got one or two GC guys, you know, we're taking, I think, three high mountains climbers. We've got uh, three mid mountains and a couple of flat guys as well. So you know you, that's how you're sort of making up your, making up your team. Um, and <clears throat> so nothing changed. And then obviously, as you're getting closer and closer, you know you're refining the group. And and obviously on our weekly performance calls, we're we're keeping the Tour de France selection very much high on priority. And the coaches and sports directors, all their feedback every week is critical. Really, you know, uh, you know, really is. I think going back to October, we already created what we call a long list. So we had a group of 13 riders back in October. So from that group, um, you know, you're, you're sort of, you're mainly focusing on that 13 because they're most likely going to come from that 13. And our group have come from that. Uh, you know, and you just refine it all the way down. But we, we have quite a tight process then in terms of how do we communicate. So we, the date was uh, two days after Dauphiné, so last Tuesday when we made the selection uh, the process then basically is I, I then call, um, as team principal, I call all the riders who haven't made selection from that long list. And obviously, you know, we, I had to tell Dylan Turns that he wasn't in the Tour de France. And it was, you know, quite a difficult phone call. But, you know, you go there with some facts and some actual, uh, you know, data, if you like. And, and he understood it in the end, didn't like it, but he understood it. And then what I do is I leave it to the coaches to tell their riders that they have been selected. Uh, because I think it's quite a nice thing for the coaches who work hard with the riders to, you know, to tell them the good news, if you like. And then once all that's done, then we can go out there in the media. So we don't do anything uh, with the media. Nobody else hears. They're not in the Tour de France other than me telling them, you know. So I think we've got quite a, a good tight process from start to finish, really. And, you know, obviously you have a long-standing relationship with Mark Cavendish. And what I took from from Mark, I saw his Instagram and I have to say, I had that same conversation with, with myself when I, in 2007 and 2008, when I was in the selection and due to my experience, Bjarna Reese was, you know, kind of came to me and asked me, you know, Hey, are you ready? And it was, it was a very tough, honest conversation first that I had to have with myself. And ultimately mm. in both those two years, I had to step aside and say, you know what, I'm not at the level I need to be at to support the team goals and to support the yeah. team leader. So I know that was a hard decision uh, for you and, and tough to take for Mark, but he showed a lot of class in, in what, what, you know, what he said there. I think for Mark, you know, uh, right from the outset, it was quite an easy process with him. And he actually took himself out of selection sort of 10 days before uh, it was due to happen. Um, because we were very clear, he didn't want to go to the tour if he wasn't winning bike races. You know, he didn't want to just ride around. I think this year's tour as well, you know, is quite a challenge for any sprinter. Um, you know, and, and, and again, I think the whole game is raised, not just in the, in the GC world, also in the sprint world, you know. Um, I think there'll be a couple of good sprinters down after the recent events in, in Poland. But, you know, um, I think Mark quite clearly was like, if I'm not winning, I don't want to go. I don't deserve to go, you know. And, and it's not for the sake of not trying, 
in or um, or anything really. You know, the guys tried pretty hard. He he had quite a difficult lockdown period. You know, he he you know he's a type of guy. We all know Mark's a racer. You know, he's certainly not a trainer. He's far from a trainer. And you know, so people with that sort of attitude really struggled. Lander struggled in the lockdown. We had to work quite hard on Lander because he's also a racer. You know, but for Mark, he he actually took himself out of selection. So it was it was relatively easy process to be honest. Yeah. I say Dylan was the hard one because Dylan was, you know, to tell him he wasn't riding after his results he's had early season was, that was tough. I tell you, really, you know, a hard call that. And with eight riders being selected and spending a total of a week, like you said, down in Nice, Mm -hmm. do you have guys on, on standby? Do you have them down there with you just in case something Mm -hmm. happens last minute? Yeah, they're not here at the moment. It's quite vague. The rules actually from the ASO are quite vague. So we're actually waiting today to find out whether they have to be here on Wednesday. So we may have to bring two reserves in on Wednesday. So we, we um, there's, there's two sort of bubbles, if you like, to get into the tour. There's your own team bubble. So we all had to have uh, a test between this last Saturday the 22nd and Monday the 24th today. Um, we've got to have the results by tomorrow. So everybody arrives tomorrow officially into the, the team hotel. So we all have to be negative coming into the team hotel tomorrow. And then you then you have uh, another test, which has to be submitted by, by Thursday night. And if that's not negative, you do, or you haven't given the test, you, you can't get your accreditation, so you can't start. Um, so our theory a little bit is, let's wait till we get our own internal testing done, which is gonna happen, uh, we'll know all the results by tonight. Uh, and if anybody's got any problems, obviously, you know, once they're in here, it'll be pretty hard for them to catch um, this virus from that point. But yeah, it's tricky. Um, I mean, we, you know, the we've brought people in. Most teams, I think, uh, you know, in the past only come in on the Wednesday, uh, but we've brought them in on the Tuesday just to give us a bit of extra time in case we have any issues. Um, there is some extra testing. There's extra things that we've got to do, um, you know, with the ASO. So we've just given ourselves plenty of time, really. And what is the the final cutoff date for uh, when do you have to actually give the official roster to the ASO? Well, normally you've got your seventy two hour before, um, but we the the I think most of it most of it is around this uh, you know this negative Corona test. That's 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 the the key thing, and that's got to be Thursday night. So you know two days two days out from racing. Um, so I think if there was somebody if there was a rider who had a positive test at that point. We we um, you know we could make a change at that late date if we wanted to. Yeah, so you know, it's, I mean, obviously, I think we've just everybody's got to work together here. You know, it's it's not easy for the ASO. I don't think it's easy for the UCI. It's not easy for the teams. I think we've all just got to work together and do do the best we can, really. And before we jump in to the first week of the tour, I just want to go back to you um, talking about your team selection really quickly because um, yeah. you know, obviously, there's been. Um, a couple of major well, former Tour de France winners n- not selected in the last week. Yep. We saw their performance Froome and, and Thomas, obviously, at the Tour de France. And it kind of raised the question for me because you, um, you you spoke about selecting a long list in October, obviously, you know, and then you pick your list, final list, two days after the Dauphiné. Um, I wonder, like, have you been looking and, and how much emphasis do you put on what other teams are doing with their selection in order to kind of select and build your team do you is there a little bit of reactionary element there um or is it sort of like we're going to build our own fortress and and 
you know, we'll sort of turn up to the tour and irrespective of who, who else turns up, we're going to be ready? Uh, you know, it's a good question. I, th- I think in our, with the team that we've got, that we don't have a lot of flexibility. So, you know, we've pretty much gone with this. We, we want to go with the very best team that we have. Um, I do think, however, if you're uh, Visma and you see the Ineoff lineup, it, it potentially changes how certainly the race tactics for them, you know. Um, so I think that's that's quite critical. I think, um, you know, for us as a team, the more GC riders on the same team turning up is perhaps better for us because there could potentially be a window if they don't all get on. Uh, you know, it could be a window of opportunity to to move at the right point if you isolate enough people but you know so for us no I think we've just concentrated on what we can do Um, and like I say we've got a we had sort of a a 13-man group Um, outside of that there wasn't really any other opportunities or options really for us so yeah I saw the selections going off but yeah for us it didn't change. Even before you know okay so the team is selected now I know that you are very meticulous with with your planning uh, you were the one that really influenced me to write everything down on in a in that notebook, and I'm sure that you have plenty I of notebook. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure I you have. Yeah, I got my red book. So just on notebook, the the um, the team here they say they see my red book and they hate it. They 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 call it the dreaded red book. Apparently, this new team. So yeah, it's um, sorry, Bobby, cutting in, but yeah, that's it's quite funny. You've mentioned my notebooks. No, I, I, I love notebooks and, you know, you and I share the same brain on a lot of stuff, but what is in that notebook? Let's just concentrate on the first week of the Tour de France. What is that <laughs> planning that goes into the Tour de France that you're taking a look at? I mean, this is a very unique parkour this year, especially with a very hard stage on stage two and a hilltop stage on, on stage four. But what, yeah. what, areas have you had to spend a little bit extra time looking at in this first week of the Tour de France? There's no room for somebody to, to arrive at the Tour and be searching for form. I think it'd be a massive risk for a GC rider to come in slightly overweight or, you know, you know, there's the old traditional, you know, yes, if you can survive the first week and you ride through that week and so you can come in a little undercooked and, and ride yourself in. Um, obviously, that's that's definitely I think over the last few years, that's been a little harder to do anyway. But certainly this year, that is a huge highlight. Then first couple of stages around Nice, um, you know, I think you've got the normal nerve. Of, of the tour and, and all the as you know, the roads really well, Bobby, you know, it's not straightforward on them descents. Um, and then you've got just the physical demands of the climbing and, and so forth. So I think that's going to, you know, that's going to play a big part. Another thing that I sort of talked a, a lot around in, in terms of mental preparation um, with the riders, we, we were in Andorra, we, we had a whole Tour de France planning session with the riders. And I talked a lot around, normally the guys have done 30 days of racing, 30 to 40 days of racing pre-tour. So you guys who are used to fighting, as you, as you know, Bobby, you've won Paris-Nice, you know, it's not an easy race, Paris-Nice, and you normally have to fight in the early stages. It, it's the one race which feels like the Tour de France. That's the feedback I get from riders, you know. Um, and, um, you know, I, I sort of call it, not, not many of the riders would have sharpened their elbows this year so far. You know, the Classics guys would have done Roubaix. They'd have done that, getting stuck into people left, right and centre. So, so I also think that's going to add quite a lot of um, uh, risk to the start of the Tour de France. But we've tried to do 
obviously you can't replicate that but you can mentally you know you can get them ready for that you can get them thinking this is how it's going to be so we've done a lot of work on making sure everybody's on weight making sure psychologically they're ready for the fight um, and just making sure condition is good from the outset so there's no building into this race we're, we're, we're going from day one um, and then obviously uh, you know there's key challenges for us then going forward in the race and, and you know if you think about Mikel Lander um, I think you you know if you just set him off on the climbs he's one of the be world's best climbers but he has his own challenges of you know staying uh, you know the crosswinds um, making it to the 3k mark on the on the flat you know tricky stages uh, and then obviously the the um, uh, the time trial you know right at the end so they're they're his three sort of main challenges for him really yeah i really think that um it's not quite the the difficulty of the course it's more the the road conditions itself sure. um you know yeah. positioning you know you, especially on that second stage you can't really go back more than 20 or 30 riders on some of those descents uh -huh. and have have a chance of being in the front at the end um, you know, with yeah. those two big climbs on stage two a little bit early, and then you come back down into Nice and then bust up uh, Col d'Ez and then finish on Cat Chemin. Yeah. Um, is that already a serious GC day? I mean, when you look at the parkour and you say it's the second stage of the tour, do you see it being absolutely decisive or do you think people will be trying to feel each other out and keep their powder dry a little bit um, going into stage four? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, don't, I can't see it being a... Um, a day which makes the difference for GC. I, I certainly think some riders will lose GC on the on the first couple. You know, there'll be a couple of incidences. We'll lose one or two riders. I'm pretty sure along the route. Um, so I think people will lose time for sure. You know, and it's the whole thing around. You know, um, again, you know, if, if somebody has a puncture or they have a bike change, you know, need a bike change or they've had a, a crash. You know, no, not many teams have had times to to drill that. You know, to practice it. If you think about us as a team, we're a brand new team. Our guys haven't raced that much together. So these are, again, extra challenges that I think, um, you know, some of the teams, you know, if we, if we look at, I mean, being part of Team Sky in the past and seeing how in 2018, I think it was when G crashed or punctured and how how the team reacted, you know, it was, it was like being in the army. They were drilled. So... You know, again, we're trying to do similar things to to drill the guys at certain situations. But I just think all these things are going to play a big part in the first few days, yeah. And speaking of that, you said the riders haven't raced their normal amount of racing um, to mm. sharpen their fighting skills, you know, like that, that just getting into the flow of, of what racing is. I'm interested to know nowadays with, with training as precise as it is um, and, yeah. and so much data available, is that... Is that lack of racing going to affect the riders physiologically, you know, in the first week, the second week, the third week? And how do you account think, for that? Yeah, I think it can for some. I think some will, um, you know, there's that sort of uh, level of base conditioning, which I think some guys will suffer in the third week. I think then on the other hand, some riders who are, you know, going to go into this pretty fresh and will stay fresher for a bit longer so i think again it's all it, it's all about the individuals and how they normally would prepare from our side with lander i think there's clear evidence the guy he doesn't fatigue too much he you know he's that's you know he's got this amazing climbing ability but he's also got this fantastic recovery ability which you know again the like the, the greats of chris Froome and the likes of have exactly the same sort of uh, attributes really so um 
<clears throat> but uh, we haven't noticed too much in in the training. I mean, yes, they didn't race much, but their training loads were pretty high, um, you know, in that build-up. So I think in the main we'll be okay, but some guys will get caught out, I'm sure. I mean, it is definitely going to be a first, a hard first week. You know, <clears throat> stage two, four, six, seven, eight, and nine are all classified as hilly or mountain stages. Yeah, um, and yeah. and I I do think. The, the monkey can jump on your back pretty pretty quickly in, in terms of recovery. So I, I, I'm sure that's been factored into the performance plan and, and things yeah. like that. But let's, let's talk about the, the big issue here. And you, you, that, you got me nervous now, Bobby. I've missed something. <laughs> I, mean, we, I, I mean, we're so excited watching bike racing on TV. We're so excited to watch the Tour de France. But the one thing that can throw a spanner in the works is the issue with the riders coming down with COVID-19. Okay, so yeah. I'm, I'm interested to hear from you what plans and protocols or precautions are you guys putting in place, you know, as a entire Peloton and then maybe more, even more specific to your team and <clears throat> who's in charge of making sure enforcing those protocols. So, yeah, so obviously the UCI announced, um, you know, and, and delivered a, a host of protocols pre-racing season back again, um, <clears throat> which were fairly standard, um, but they were very much pointing at uh, you do what the country you're racing in, you know, um, you know, you just follow their guidelines. So I think coming into the tour, the ASO, are, you know, it's really, the, the standard has gone up massively um, coming into the tour. So they've they put some very strict rules and regulations around what you can and can't do. So there is the whole getting into the bubble and what's that bubble look like. They got three levels of bubbles. So you've got a level one, which is your, um, you know, the actual racing teams and the, and only the staff of the SO who are actually very close to the teams. Level two then is that, that next group out. So, uh, you know, they're putting up the barriers and putting all, you know, all that sort of stuff. And then they've got level three, which is further out again, which is all your hospitality and things like that. Um, looking at all the rules, I think they've done a pretty good job, to be honest. Um, we've got, we've got tests on Wednesday or it's got to be in by Thursday. Then every rest day as well, we've got a test. They've limited the amount of people on race so 30 people per team. So that's staff and riders. So maximum you can take is 22 staff. Now that does compromise. We, we were looking at taking, I think about 26 people in total. Um, not for the whole duration, but we were bringing like the nutritionist in for the first four or five days and they'd go, we were going to bring somebody specifically in for the time trial. Um, you know, so we, we've had to sort of, um, change tact a little bit there. So you, you can change people, but only on the two rest days. And basically it's one out, one in it is, is the only thing you can do. So, you know, I think there's some quite strict monitoring on that. I think the biggest challenge though, which the SO have thrown in there is that we just can't socialize with anybody. And it's very, very clear. So, you know, um, you're in the hotel um, and you could be sharing a hotel with another team, but you can't sort of go to the bar to have a coffee with somebody or you can't really talk to anybody else. And then I think the biggest challenge again is for instance at the race start so you're in the paddock you all pull up in your buses and you literally have to stay in your area the only people who can move their area is the riders and then the people who have to go with the riders to help them get ready you know go to the line so swanier maybe the doctor maybe um you know the the, the, the pr guy and that's it there's nothing else you can't interact at all 
And I think the ASO have got basically people who are on the ground who are setting them standards. Uh, and it's a little bit like, you know, in the tour, if you're speeding in the tour, you get your accreditation taken off you uh, and you get the, tar- the car taken off the race. It's very similar. If we're caught talking to other people, socializing with other people, we can get our accreditation taken off us. Wow. So, you know, it sounds like they're policing this, you know, um, well, they are policing it. Um, the other one is we've got to wear face masks all the time. Now, that hasn't changed for us as a team. We, we Even in the cars, you know, so you'll see the sports directors and the mechanic in the car, they're all wearing face masks in the car. Uh, and that's, that, so every single vehicle, you have to wear face masks all the time. The only place you're not allowed to wear face masks is in your bedroom, basically. Um, so, you know, there's, and obviously the riders when they're racing. So there's a real tight protocol on that. And we also think, the police will be really checking people who are in the cars because it's all about that image. Um, you know, I'm sure a lot of the French, not all, I'm, I'm, well, I don't know, but I'm sure quite a lot of the French towns and villages aren't particularly happy. You know, they've got the Tory France banging through their town in these particular moments, you know? So there's, so there's, you know, the, the ASO have got some really quite strict rules within our own team. We, we put in our own procedures on top of the UCI procedures, which, it's pretty much set following the same guidelines as, as what the ASO have done. And basically our head doctor who's on race, he's the guy, he's the policeman, you know, and, and, and at the start of every race, I've, I've got him to stand up and said, right, this guy can tell anybody, even me, if I'm not doing something right, absolutely bang me on the head and tell me, put my mask on. Or, you know, if he see, doesn't see me using the hand gels or whatever, he has every right to tell me what, what, what to do basically, you know, um, so, 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 I mean, just one of the other things that we've put in place we, is like um, external shopping. You know, if you think every two or three days, the chef goes shopping, the soigneurs will go shopping. So we've got, an ex, we've got a team who are working on the outside of us who aren't, aren't part of our inner bubble, but on the outside who are traveling around France for three weeks, staying in hotels always within an hour of the team. Um, and just at our beck and call, if we need anything from outside of the bubble, and they can go get it and basically they just dump it in the car park and we pick it up. Um, and we've got a cleaning process of that stuff as well coming into the race. So everything will get cleaned and then it will be handed over to the team. So, you know, I think we're doing maximum we can to ensure, you know, I think the thing is I'm, I'm, I'm touch wood, you know, I, I can't say I'm sat here. Well, I'm a bit nervous about it, to be honest, you know, because if it's, if you get two tests, you're out, the t- whole team is out. Now, somebody said to me this morning, it's two tests per week. So our doctors are just checking on the, the actual rule. But, you know, if you think about that, you think about a team like us who, you know, we're, we're at the minute, um, you know, getting very close to a new partner. And say if you get thrown out the Tour de France after a week, it's, it's big news. So I'm, I am nervous. So we're doing maximum we can. And I just want to make sure if it did happen, there's nothing we could do, could do about it, you know. And on that, you just said, you know, there's a lot riding on the Tour de France. We mm. saw, well, I'm not sure if, if how much attention, you said you, you, you've been paying attention to the US sports and how they've been handling yeah. it. And we saw recently there was a, a, a case where um, a bunch of athletes tested positive um, from one team, all the results mm. were handled in one lab. Turns out yeah. those results were false positives. Right, yeah, um, scary one, yeah. yeah. It, is, it is a really scary one. I'm interested to know... Obviously, you're in a situation where you know you kind of got to do this race, obviously, and, and you've got to put everything into it, and there's faith in it. 
How are you mm. feeling about that type of thing? The knowledge that potentially, you know, you could have two or three writers test positive and they're not actually yeah. positive. <clears throat> well, uh, uh, yeah, you know, you are relying on the test being accurate. Um, I think there's clear evidence throughout the world that sometimes there are false positives. Um, what we're doing to ensure that is using the lab that we have a relationship with, that we do all our medicals with in the winter. Um, they're, they're, they're based in Turin. Our head doctor's uh, an Italian doctor. Um, you know, and the, the lab are actually traveling, you know, uh, tomorrow over ready to do the tests uh, tomorrow night on all of our riders and stuff. So, so you know, with, with that, we know there's a certain procedure. We've got the relationship with them. Um, so that's, that's the way that we're doing it, you know. You know, with with all the data tracking, wearables, et cetera, uh, what new metrics, other than just a positive or a negative COVID test, what new metrics Hmm. are you guys collecting to track the rider's immune health? And is that type of monitoring or behavior sustainable? Well, since the return to racing, we've we've got our own internal monitoring system where every day, every single member of the team uh, by 11 o'clock every morning has to have submitted a, a, a checklist basically of, you know, all the, you know, pretty simple uh, procedures, uh, uh, sorry, uh, illnesses potentially or, or uh, you know, not feeling so good. So that's that's been happening. And then on race, you've got to do it twice a day. So um, before 11 o'clock in the morning and before 11 o'clock in the evening. And that is also a rule here with the, uh, with the ASO. What they've put on top a little bit, again, is that they've put like a point scoring thing. So they, they're, so at the minute, what we have is just, do you have a headache? Do you have, uh, are you vomit, you know, are you vomiting? Have you got any sort of nausea? Have you got any, you know, there's certain uh, parameters like that. Um, but we, we're just sort of, if anybody's got that, then the doctors are in contact with you. What the ASO have done, they've scored each of these illnesses. Um, and basically, if you've got a score of six and over, so for instance, like a sore throat perhaps scores three or something, you know, uh, a, a slight cough scores one or something like that. Um, so if, you, if you've got a score of six and over, then it, it, it flags a red flag and, and, and it, you go into the process of having to isolate that person and, uh, and take them to one side. I think the issue that happens there is if it's a rider and they've uh, been sharing a room with another rider who isn't showing any symptoms, what's actually going to happen at that moment? So it's a tricky one. It really is to know exactly what will happen. So the riders are sharing rooms. It's not uh, yeah. each one rider per room. Yeah, we yeah yeah that was one of the rules we thought that was going to happen was one rider per room, but the sharing rooms. You know, and I know some teams obviously you know they they do that anyway. Um, you know, they they uh, they have their riders individually in rooms, but you know, not all teams it it, it costs, doesn't it? You know, and it all adds up at the end. So. Um, you know, other teams aren't quite so fortunate to be able to have that luxury, I think. Yeah, let's let's just hope that the winner of the Tour de France is the strongest rider and not mm. that the winner of the Tour de France comes down to who's the best rider to or leader of the team of individuals yeah. with the best immune health system. You know, because, yeah. I mean, imagine you're, you're in the yellow jersey, four mm. days left in the Tour, exactly, and yeah. someone in the team comes down with these symptoms, especially like you said, a team like yours that you kind of let it slip there that you may have a new partner. So we're going to ask you about that if possible, (laughs) but you know, everything is riding on the tour. You got the race under control and then something like that happens. And then, you know, that person doesn't get a chance to finish the tour. 
Let, let's let's hope that that doesn't happen. Uh, let's mm. let's have a clean Tour de France from start to finish. I think everybody's professional enough and and realizes how important this is for our sport. And yeah, you know, if you have to give up the social socializing around, I mean, these these riders are making some big commitments. Everybody, all you guys in the you know in the team, those thirty guys that you have at the race times whatever seventeen teams, and then all the people around, it has to be a, a massive undertaking and a commitment from everyone to make this work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So new partner, can you can you elaborate on that at all? Or um... uh, not really tell who it is. I mean, obviously, um, you know, we, we've as I say, we've had our uh, issues during lockdown. I think there's there's several teams who are in a similar situation. <clears throat> um, fortunately for us, the you know door closes on some, but another doors open, and you know we 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 didn't just sit still and, and mope around we got on we you know rolled the sleeves up and we got at it um and we've sort of created some good opportunities for us so we you know we're, we're very close I, I hope in the next sort of week uh maximum we, we'll know a lot more going forward you know um but i think we're in a pretty good place uh you know the, the team's secure for the future there's no issues there but um you know I, I i sort of i've been hesitating a bit when i say that because in actual fact you know, five months ago, we were singing and dancing, thinking everything was hunky dory. And, you know, I, I'd taken a new role and was loving every, every minute of it. And then we, we get sideswiped, um, you know, by this virus. So, you know, let's keep fingers crossed. I think we're in a pretty good place. Yeah. And how have you been enjoying your role in the team and, and this sort of new, new endeavor that you've undertaken the last, the last yeah, well, really, four months? Yeah, really good. I mean, um, you know, the, having the opportunity and given the opportunity um, last year, um, obviously it was a huge thing to leave uh, Team Sky. And, and you know, I'd been working with Dave Brailsford for nearly 20 years, uh, which is a long time. Um, and you sort of get into a rhythm, don't you? You know, you sort of get you get comfortable with people and, you know, all the ins and outs. But I just felt like I, need, I, I personally needed a new challenge. Um, I don't think I had to leave the team. There was no issues there from what I knew. Um, but, you know, I certainly, I just felt like this was a great opportunity. Um, so I thought, well, I'm going to go for this. And, and to be honest with you, I haven't regretted any of it. I mean, you know, you know, of course, you sort of look and you think, God, Ineos haven't had, from what I can see, any issues financially through covid I don't think they're going to fold as a team or anything. It's obviously fairly secure uh, as, as a sports team can be. You know, we've had our ups and downs now, but I, I still don't regret any of it. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. I, I, you know, certainly pre-COVID, I was absolutely loving it, to be honest. Um, I think what's going to happen now in a, in a year's time, I'm going to look back and actually say, uh, you know, I've learned so much more because of COVID. I've learned how to deal with things a lot more. And, and to be honest, I don't think I'd actually um, worked as hard as that in a, in a long, long time. That was, yeah, it was pretty tough, yeah. And that's that says a lot to people that don't know how hard Rod works for him to actually say that he worked harder than he's ever worked before. Because if there's one guy that you want in the trenches with you, you are definitely on in my podium of guys that I would want to have um, down there with me. Because, you know, you plan your work and you work your plan and you know, you're one of the best in the business. And thank you so much for coming on with us today, Rod. I know you got a million things you on your guys. plate with the, with the tour starting less than a week away. So, hey, listen, yeah. we wish you, your team, the entire Peloton for that matter, the best yeah. of luck. And let's just pray that this 107th edition of the Tour de France goes off without a hitch. Yeah. Nice one. Cheers, guys.
Live bike racing is back, and Flow Bikes is your home for the biggest events of the year. Get unprecedented access to live coverage of the Giro d'Italia, Tour of Flanders, Amstel Gold Race, and much, much more. Subscribe today by going to flowbikes.com slash velonews. Additionally, Canadian viewers get access to the Tour de France, Vuelta España, Liège-Bastogne-Liège, and Paris-Roubaix. Subscribe today by going to flowbikes.com slash velonews. That's flobikes.com forward slash velonews. Okay, everyone, that's all we have for this week. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And thanks again to Rod Ellingworth from Team Bahrain McLaren for joining us. He took a, a good chunk of time out of his day when I'm sure he has a million other things to do. So really appreciate that, Rod. You can find all our past episodes as well as a ton of other fantastic cycling journalism over at velonews.com. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or whatever your favorite go-to podcast site may be. Just search for Put Your Socks On or Fizzo, P-Y-S-O. Please continue to show your support by subscribing to this program and please spread the word by telling your friends about us. You can get to us on social media at that is Gus and at bobby.julik on Instagram. Shoot us a message there. Any suggestions, any feedback, uh, it's all very much appreciated. The tour is upon us, and next week we will be back uh, in the midst of the biggest bike race for 2020 and what I think will be a bit of a watershed moment for the sport of cycling and the current COVID situation. So very excited to see that race kick off. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. Until then, I'm Angus Morton. Thank you very much again. And man, Tour de France time, baby. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe. Stay sane. And don't forget to put your socks on. Yeah.